Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the next in STS's summer series of webinars. This series runs every other week and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. STS would like to thank Medtronic for their generous support and sponsorship of this webinar and the STS summer series. Today's topic is pulmonary metastasectomy. Still recommended? We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Dr. Bernard Park and Dr. Dirk van Rendock. Dr. Park is a thoracic surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and Dr. van Rendock is a professor of thoracic surgery at University Hospitals Leuven in Belgium. Dr. Park, Dr. van Rendock, I'll now turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Wes. And thank you to the uh, STS and to my uh, co-moderator, Dirk, for uh, wonderful planning of this uh, very important uh, session. I'm gonna turn it over to Dirk to uh, go over the goals of the webinar, but before I do that, uh, I just wanted to um, thank our, uh, and introduce our esteemed panelists, uh, starting with uh, Dr. Mara Antonoff, thoracic surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at the ND Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, Dr. Frank Detterbeck, Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Surgical Director of Thoracic Oncology at Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Michael Lanuti, Director of Thoracic Oncology at the Mass Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Andreas Rimner, uh, Radiation Oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and Stephen Solomon, Chief of Interventional Radiology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. I really thank all of the panelists for taking the time uh, to address this uh, important topic. So now I'll turn it over to Dirk. He's gonna go over the, um, the goals of the uh, webinar. Thank you, Dr. Park. Also on my behalf, uh, welcome to this summer webinar on a very interesting topic. So actually the goals of this webinar are threefold. First of all, we want to review the recent STS expert consensus guidelines on pulmonary metastasectomy that was published last year in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. And actually two of our panelists were co-authors on this paper, Dr. Michael Lanuti and Dr. Frank Datterbeck. So we are very happy to have them here on this uh, webinar this evening. Secondly, we want to discuss the role of local therapy in the multidisciplinary treatment of pulmonary metastatic, metastatic disease. And finally, we want to compare all the availability, available ablative modalities such as surgery, stereotactive ablative radiotherapy, and other forms of ablation and how to choose between these different modalities. So I now turn over back to uh, Dr. Bernie Park to give us some demonstrative cases on pulmonary metastasectomy. Bernie? Thank you, Dirk. So I picked a few cases submitted by some of our panelists uh, to uh, demonstrate some clinical, um, real clinical cases and some of the types of scenarios that uh, all of the panelists and all of you that are joining us in the webinar um, often face. First case is that of a 52-year-old with a history of metastatic osteosarcoma that has pulmonary metastases. The patient was initially diagnosed in 2002 and at the time underwent resection and adjuvant chemotherapy, was free of disease until 2005 when they were diagnosed with pulmonary nodules and at that time underwent bilateral VATS and wedge resections of all known disease. Again, was free of disease uh, for four years when there was a left lower lobe nodule that was detected. So you can see that um, actually if you go back uh, 
between these x-rays, probably the nodule was there a long time, but probably not really becoming realized until uh, December 2008. And slowly over time, um, seven months later, had some growth, and five months after that, had some additional growth. So really now seven years later and four years after initial metastasectomy with a solitary growing nodule. So what would you recommend in this scenario? Continued observation, surgical resection, radiofrequency ablation, stereotactic body radiotherapy, or systemic therapy, chemotherapy. The uh, next case is uh, that of a 83-year-old with a history of metastatic cholangiocarcinoma. Initial diagnosis in this patient was in July of 2016, and the patient underwent a laparoscopic liver resection with uh, complete resection and had no additional therapy for isolated disease. Was NED until two years later when a new left lower lobe nodule was identified and a biopsy was actually done, positive for metastatic cholangiocarcinoma. Had no treatment, just had observation for almost two years when there was a question of liver recurrence. Patient underwent, uh, without tissue diagnosis of the liver, one dose of systemic therapy, which they did not tolerate. Had a repeat liver MRI, which showed no tumor, and yet had this growing, continued to grow lesion here in the left lower lobe, isolated. So what do you recommend for this patient? More observation, surgical resection of the pulmonary disease, radiofrequency ablation, radiation, or systemic therapy. And the uh, last demonstrative case uh, is that of a 77-year-old with a history of breast cancer in the distant past and metastatic colon cancer to a growing right lung nodule. Patient's colon cancer was diagnosed in February of 17. Initial path, path was stage 3B after lap right colon. An adjuvant treatment was NED for almost two years when diagnosed with liver metastases, underwent liver resection and hepatic pump therapy. In October of 2019, developed a punctate right lung nodule and underwent chemotherapy for the remainder of 2019 into 2020, and then observation. And as you can see, punctate lesion in October 19, which has been steadily growing uh, both on systemic therapy and uh, off systemic therapy with no additional nodules. So again, what's the recommendation in this patient? Would it be observation, resumption of chemotherapy, surgical resection, ablation, or radiation therapy. Of note, this patient has no tissue diagnosis. So I just showed some common cases. Um, I tried not to complicate things by um, having patients that had multiple lesions. So I just kept it simple, one, one lung lesion each patient. And so I thought that these were all somewhat different cases, but had some common themes to it. Um, and thought it would be a nice springboard towards uh, the, uh, the further discussion um, in the webinar. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Van Remdock, who will uh, now um, take us to the next uh, section. Thank you, Dr. Park. So actually the first topic for our discussion is, uh, is on the uh, SDS expert consensus document. And uh, we have prepared some questions for um, our co-authors on that paper. So maybe the first question is, is uh, to Michael Lanuti. Michael, can you describe the impetus and process behind this recently published SDS consensus guidelines? Yes, hi, uh, thanks, Dirk. Um, so the guideline was a process that took actually about two, almost three years, and it was in recognition of the fact that there was no standardization of uh, how to address pulmonary metastectomy. At the time, there was no randomized study. The PULMIC trial was not published. 
And uh, so given the, the void in the literature of how to approach this, uh, the STS work, work, workforce on evidence-based surgery uh, developed a task force of about 14 people, 14 surgeons that um, were to uh, basically put this together. Um, again, the goal was uh, to look at the role of resection or ablation even of pulmonary metastases. So that was included. Uh, we look back to the literature, 1990 was the, the cut point. We didn't go beyond that. And uh, we ended up looking at uh, over uh, 500 articles. Uh, and then after putting some things together with the help of the STS, we then came up with consensus statements. We realized that there was no level one evidence for any randomized data to even give a frank recommendation. So we therefore, um, this, these are consensus statements and they were subject to voting. So the panel had to vote and there had to be a greater than 75% consensus or, or an agreement for them to make as a consensus statement. Uh, and if they weren't met at 75%, uh, they were not even included in, in the entire manuscript. Again, these are opinion statements. These are not, these are not formal recommendations, and that's an important uh, thing to note. So th anyway, that's how it was put together. Uh, we can sort of talk about other things. Okay, and Mike, I would just add uh, two things. You know, one of the impetus behind it was also uh, the ESTS had done a nice review of metastasectomy, but, you know, that was uh, getting to be almost 10 years uh, before. Uh, actually, Dirk was uh, very prominent in, uh, in that effort. Uh, we thought it was time for an upgrade or update, I should say. And uh, the other call out I'd make is just to John Handy, who led the uh, SDS project and uh, I think really deserves a lot of credit for uh, putting it all together. Okay. Yes, thank you. Now, Frank or, or Michael, uh, can someone summarize a little bit what the major take-home messages were from, from your review? Yeah, uh, I'll jump in on that. Uh, so I think uh, the first thing that was probably the most important thing that we could uh, develop from this was that all these cases should be in a multidisciplinary setting and uh, ideally all disciplines represented that could potentially uh, treat these patients, including medical oncology, radiation, oncology, uh, thoracic surgeons, and even uh, our, our interventional radiologists for thermal ablation techniques. Um, so that was the one thing. The second is that uh, I think we came to a, a rather easy understanding that pneumonectomy was still discouraged, but appropriate in certain cases, and so not to be completely disbanded in, uh, in, the, in the select case. It was very hard to come up with a number of metastases that we could say, okay, surgeons, you can consider this. That we struggled with a lot. And as we know, the literature is uh, all over the place. In the end, we ended up with three being the magic number. I, I don't think that any of us could give you any hard evidence that that was the real number, but three was the consensus opinion. And then two other things. So what do you do with lymph nodes and should we do standard lymph node sampling with metastectomy or even consider dissection? Again, very little data, lots of retrospective series. We think in the end it was, it's really prognostic and it doesn't, it doesn't improve survival. I think we, all were in agreement to that. Uh, we would like to see surgeons do more sampling at the time of, of metastectomy, but it, it's not sort of mandatory. And then lastly is that thermal ablation is part of this, clearly part of this landscape. And, and, that ain't, and included, and uh, I should say, is our radiation therapist and you know, this notion of, uh, of stereotactic ablative therapy. So those two are, are in the landscape, and particularly for patients who are high risk or who refuse resection, uh, those are great tools in the toolbox. Okay. So the other thing that I would 
add is that, uh, you know, in terms of approaches, uh, you know, we certainly favored uh, parenchymal sparing. Uh, you know, Mike already talked about uh, avoiding pneumonectomy whenever possible, but, you know, really ideally doing a wedge or some minimal uh, amount of uh, parenchymal resection. Uh, the other was that, uh, you know, we actually favored doing uh, minimally invasive techniques whenever uh, possible. Uh, if that wasn't going to lend itself to uh, complete resection and uh, sternotomy or, you know, some other open approach is uh, certainly appropriate, but uh, uh, minimally invasive when, uh, when possible. Okay. So maybe a final question. Uh, I, you already said that you have discussed a lot of questions, but uh, what are the major, so, sorry, um, what are the most critical and unresolved questions that we are still living with at the moment? Well, I guess maybe I'll jump in there. Um, you know, I think one of the issues, of course, is to really define you know, how much benefit does uh, metastasectomy really provide? Uh, you know, the data that we have uh, is in selected patients. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to really nail that down, the selection versus the treatment. Um, I think another thing that is, uh, I think is still difficult is how do you select patients appropriately? We talked about the number of three, the, the you know, magic number of three, uh, but there's more things that go into the selection, and I think that's not well-defined, and I think that's why a multidisciplinary discussion, I think, is, is useful. Uh, things like uh, rate of growth, the disease-free interval, uh, uh, nature of the cancer, uh, whether there's systemic therapy that's available, uh, all of these things factor into it, and then, of course, uh, you know, with the advent of additional techniques like SBRT and ablation, uh, I think how to mix and match that with uh, surgical treatment uh, ends up being kind of an individualized thing. Uh, and I think uh, really defining where each of those should fit is not, was not something that we could define very well. Okay, well, thank you both. Um, I'm going to turn over back to uh, Dr. Park for the, for the next uh, topic. Great. Um, that was really a great summary. And I think we're going to delve a little bit deeper into sort of the role of local therapy for pulmonary metastatic disease. Now, um, Michael and Frank mentioned that one of the key uh, cons consensus recommendations is that the decisions for local pulmonary therapy be done in a multidisciplinary fashion. So my question uh, to maybe Tamara is, um, you know, what is the, uh, it's easy to say that all these uh, decisions should be made in a multidisciplinary fashion, but we kind of all are aware, both uh, surgeons, interventional radiologists, and, and the radiation therapists, that many times it's kind of a one-way conversation between the medical oncologist and the and the local therapist, we'll just say local therapist. So uh, how did they do it at Anderson or how could it be reasonable? What's the ideal mechanism by which we can achieve the multidisciplinary conversation? How often do you bring in the radiation therapist or the interventional radiologist when you are referred to patients specifically for surgical management of metastatic disease? That's a great question. You know, and of course, this is already touched on by Dr. Detterbeck, but the multidisciplinary discussion is, is really incredibly important to ensuring that patients not only understand what all of their options are, but they're aware of their path early on. So even for patients in whom the intent is to provide um, systemic therapy after discovery or diagnosis of uh, metastasis after a period of a disease-free interval, I think it's really valuable to have other practitioners involved early on so that they have an idea in their head, if I don't have progressive disease after this period of systemic therapy, then I may be a candidate for local therapy. I think it's part of our, our role as healthcare providers to make sure that patients are well communicated with regard to the path that they have ahead of them. Um, and you asked about the issue of involving multiple different providers from each type of local therapy early on. And, and I think it depends a little bit. You know, of course, with this consensus statement, the recommendation was 
three or fewer lesions. And certainly there are plenty of us who have operated on people with dozens of lesions and manage people with complex lesions. There's a patient who has eight peripheral nodules that are pretty easy to all wedge out. And there's a patient that may only have two nodules but, or three nodules, but they're all deep within a segment that would require a rather large anatomic resection. And those are situations where I really believe that having that conversation not after you see the patient, but before you see the patient. When you're prepping for clinic and you see the imaging and you say, geez, it looks like this patient has two nodules. One of them will be a pretty easy wedge. The other one I'm worried, uh, you know, maybe not so easily accessible. Maybe that's a better candidate for SBRT based on its size. If this one is growing faster, we should take this one out. This one may be one that we can observe and it would be too small to palpate anyway and it may be better suited for an ablative therapy um, once it gets a little bigger. Again, that also depends on whether your approach is going to be open, uh, orthoarcoscopic, or via uh, uh, using the robot, but um, these are all considerations. So you asked how we do it at Anderson, and of course, um, every institution is going to be different, but I do feel that to the best of our ability, the extent to which we can involve as many care providers as possible early on, and, and I do believe that not only includes the medical oncologist for the patient's primary malignancy, and the individuals, individuals who can provide local therapy to the lung, but also the, uh, the um, surgeon who may have operated on the primary lesion in the first place. And so I think it's important if you're talking about a colorectal metastasis to involve the colorectal surgeon, and sometimes there's going to be a hepatobiliary surgeon if there's also a liver lesion in these colorectal patients. It may involve the orthopedic surgeon if it's a sarcomatous primary or potentially a gynecologic oncologist if it's something that's maybe a leiomyosarcoma from the uterus. But involving all these individuals is really the best way to make sure that we're picking the right time. I mean, these are all, all questions because if we wait for the medical oncologist to say, let's give chemotherapy or let's give immunotherapy or whatever it may be, to decide, okay, now I think is the time. What they may not understand is that the location of the tumor, the solid nature of the tumor, it, um, all of these aspects can render us to consider it a good time or a bad time to operate on the patient. And even in examples where a tumor becomes particularly cavitary and it's longer palpable and we've maybe lost a time where surgery may have been may have been easier. In terms of the exact mechanism, I mean, I've talked a lot about timing, trying to get everybody involved early on, but what's the mechanism? Should it be at a tumor board? Should we have an email chain? If you have, you know, um, HIPAA protected email, if you should you be using text messages, whatever your your uh, telecommunications method is at your institution. There are a variety of different ways, but I really think a wide discussion, including everyone, is ideally the best. I do get on the phone before I meet a patient with their oncologist, with their uh, primary surgeon of the other side of disease. But if I don't have that opportunity or someone shows up in clinic or there's a different imaging study that someone else hasn't seen, I tend to find emails to be particularly helpful. We do not present every single one of these patients at our tumor boards just because there are so many, and that would be, you know, rather uh, arduous, and it would fill up days and days of tumor boards more than we have in, in a week. But um, I think for complicated cases, they absolutely do belong at the tumor boards. And, you know, at, at a lot of uh, institutions, we're aware that, for example, if you have someone with a sarcomatous MET or a colorectal MET, they may end up being presented at the sarcoma tumor board, not the thoracic tumor board. And I think we have to be willing to get up and go to the other tumor boards to discuss these issues with the other uh, specialists in, in the other areas. Um, but ultimately, the different types of, of communication are going to be different for every individual. But I, I think that having, having that conversation, whether it be via telephone or an email that includes all of the different people who are involved, is, is really important. And early on, as soon as the pulmonary metastatic disease is diagnosed, that the patient has an idea of what pathway to have ahead of, of themselves. Great. Thank you. Um... Steve Solomon, um, it does, do all um, patients that have uh, pulmonary metastatic disease, um, should they all get some kind of systemic therapy either before treatment of their local pulmonary disease or afterwards? I think that's a, that's, that's a really difficult question. I don't think we know the, the right answer to that. Um, I, and so it's, it's pretty much an opinion and working with your oncologist, as Mara just said, is how I usually uh, work this question out. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, discussions about cells that are freed, whether it be surgery, ablation, or radiation after a procedure, whether it's helpful to have some kind of adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards is something some people think about. Um, I don't think there's a consensus on exactly whether you need the, 
chemo before, after, where it goes. That one of the good things about all of these local therapies, I think we'll get to, is the concept that by taking care of these oligometastatic lesions, we can perhaps get to a point where the patient can take a break from their chemotherapy, a chemotherapy holiday. And when we think about treating the patients and what the endpoint of treating these patients is, besides things that you're going to talk about later, I know uh, about survival and everything, I think their quality of life is critical and giving them a chemotherapy a holiday is very meaningful to these patients. Thank you. So, Bernie, uh, let me just add a little something there. You know, I think that for all of the treatments that we have, it really comes down to this risk-benefit balance, you know. Uh, you know, we would uh, certainly consider taking a metastasis out, but if we think that it's going to be highly risky and, uh, you know, patient is, uh, uh, we're not feeling that it's going to be all, all that much benefit, then, uh, you know, that doesn't look very good. And I think the same applies to chemo. You know, it depends a lot. Are you talking about a tumor that is pretty responsive? Are you talking about third-line chemo where your, you know, response rates are going to be lower? Are you talking about a patient that's already got a, you know, creatinine elevation and, you know, other issues that might make it more risky? Uh, so I think those are always the considerations that uh, come into it. How much benefit do we think this treatment might give and how much of a risk are we taking? One more thing, Bernie, I'll just say is that I sometimes like if the chemo, as Frank was saying, is the chemo is really working, let the chemo do its part to make the lesion smaller, which makes it an easier procedure for us. So sometimes if the direction is positive, then make it smaller and we can have a, a less invasive procedure with a less invasive ablation or some other procedure as well. Yeah, I think you, uh, you both touched upon the fact that not all scenarios, not all histologies, not all diseases are the same. So all, you know, there are a wide variety of differences in pulmonary metastatic disease. So uh, that really gets to my next question, which I'm going to ask multiple panelists to answer, but I'm going to start with Andreas Rimner, radiation oncology. Are, are there any uh, s clinical scenarios where you are being asked to consider radiation for pulmonary metastatic disease where you feel hesitation, where you feel like it's not the right um, you know, scenario for, uh, because uh, as a wise person uh, once commented, you know, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And, um, you know, um, a lot of times people refer you patients and they're kind of expecting you to take care of it. They think you can do it. What are the scenarios that you hesitate where you're like, well, um, you know, this is probably not the, be the best way to move forward? Yeah, I think it depends on a number of factors that are not necessarily radiation specific, just as already was mentioned, but in terms of radiation specific um, aspects, in principle, there is no site that we cannot treat, but we have to adjust in terms of how, what fractionation we use, what dose we can safely treat to, and that of course has an effect on how much local control we can expect. However, in a you know young fit patient that has a you know very good otherwise uh, good prognosis has a good life expectancy great functional status if a patient was not seen by a surgeon and comes to me directly from the medong i will ask the medong you know was surgery considered for such a patient because they may be in that category of patients that will have a benefit of maybe the additional five percent or so local control that uh, surgery has potentially over uh, radiation therapy, especially if it's a more radio-resistant histology. Um, I had recently a patient where there was a tumor invading a branch of the pulmonary vein. Um, and that is probably a situation where surgical management can probably get, an, has an edge in terms of local control um, because you can go in there and really make sure you get good margins on it. Plus, there may be at least a theoretical risk that if the tumor responds really well to radiation, that there could be a risk of bleeding. So there, there are very unique scenarios where I think it's important to consider the other option. And I think it's true for all of us. We all have a hammer, whether that is surgery, stereotactic radiation, or radiofrequency ablation. And it's important for us when someone comes to us to also consider what are the other alternative local treatment options. On the other hand, if it's an 85-year-old patient who has lots of medical comorbidities and a 
a straightforward re uh, lesion for stereotactic radiation, there's not much that would stop us from, you know, considering that the appropriate treatment. So Steve Solomon, uh, somebody, one of our um, webinar attendees asked, uh, you know, related to this topic, is there any type of primary malignancy that you would not consider ablating a, a you know, isolated set of metastasis for? So from a, from a histology perspective, I think it's, it's less about the histology for us, um, and, and, but, but from, for, there are other, many other factors that would make a lesion not really amenable to ablation, and that can be uh, the size of the lesion. I think the larger the size, and I'm talking once you start getting over, let's say, two and two and a half centimeters, your success rate goes down. And so that's one reason why it might not be a great lesion for ablation. A second a reason might be the location. If it's up against the mediastinum, if it's in the hilum, those are, those are challenging places. So there are a number of reasons why it wouldn't be good. And then the, there are other reasons that would be good. And the nice thing is when we talk to each other, surgeons, radiation oncologists, and, and interventional radiologists, we can see where things are good for one, maybe harder for others. And, and, and that's something that makes it uh, a really uh, in the best interest of the patient. Great, thank you. So M Michael, I mean, wh when, do you, when do you say no to a patient uh, as far as surgery? You know, we often see patients and they come and they really are focused on getting all their pulmonary metastatic disease out. And um, so when do you as a surgeon, you know, kind of say, well, this is not a great scenario for, for a pulmonary metastasectomy? Yeah, so, so that's, uh, I think, a multi, uh, step process and evaluation that is their physical uh, clinical status and performance status would be certainly something that would make a surgeon pause if they had bad performance status. But let's say that's okay. Um, biology of tumor, you know, if someone came to me with uh, multiple melanoma metastases, I would say we, there are better systemic therapies for now and we could reserve surgery for something that's perhaps not responsive. So, you know, it's, I think a surgeon has to think about histology, think about what treatments are available for specific histologies, because that should definitely play into it. And we always throw around the number of metastases. So we brought this up now a few times. We, we all love the oligomet. Uh, and so when do you sort of say no, uh, if there's three or if there's 10? And then when there's 10, I kind of look at the patient performance status and I always say that uh, age trumps all, in my opinion. The younger the patient, the more aggressive I think you could be and perhaps uh, the more morbidity you would accept for you know, intervention with surgery. Um, so, uh, and then of course you think about how much long would it take to remove all those and do they have enough capacity for that and that I think that's where you play in with your other colleagues about, okay, we can do some lead resections, we can do perhaps an ablative technique and spare loan. And so uh, you try to really, I think, uh, individualize every case. Um, clearly 20 pulmonary mets would make you shy away. So I would add a little something. I think that, uh, to me, biology trumps all, you know, and I think in the end, how the patients do is probably more driven by the biology of their tumor than by what we do. You know, we think we make such a difference, and I'm not sure we do as much as uh, we think we do. Um, so, you know, biology to me factors into it a lot, and you get, I think you get a gestalt of the biology from seeing how it you know, behaves. If you see somebody that has a met that's growing very slowly, you have some idea of that trajectory. If it's somebody where, uh, boy, the number of mets just seems to keep increasing uh, fairly rapidly, you, know, you start to think, boy, I don't know if I'm gonna get control of this. On the other hand, if they have you know, even five mets or you know, eight mets, whatever, but they just slowly are plodding along and growing and new ones are not showing up, I have more of a sense that, you know, maybe I can uh, achieve something by local therapy. So 
I think a lot about the biology, perhaps a little bit more than the histology per se. I think the histology plays into that, but it's really, you know, how is this particular individual's biologic, you know, what's the biologic behavior of that tumor? If I can just jump off of what Dr. Detterbeck said, I, I would totally agree that biology absolutely trumps all. And when I think about the people whom I've turned away, um, there's scenarios similar to what you've said where, you know, there may be lesions that are at various ages, various sizes, suggesting that if we can see lesions that are three centimeters, two centimeters, five millimeters, one millimeter, there's probably other lesions that are microscopic and we're not seeing on the imaging. And I would say the most common situation where I turn people away, and it's awful to have to do so, but it's folks in whom you plan staged procedures of each side and you finish one side and they come back for their visit between the two sides and you see not only new lesions on the side that you still need to operate on, but potentially even new lesions on the side that you already did operate on. You've already palpated that lung and there was nothing there a few weeks earlier and now there is. And that's just the patient's biology and it's, it's unfortunate. It's an awful situation, but I think those are the patients in whom we know their biology is such that we aren't helping them. We're actually just hindering them from being able to receive some sort of systemic therapy that can, that can help them better. And that's one of the things that I think is important for patients to hear when you do need to turn them away is that for us to operate on you, we have to stop your systemic therapy, both beforehand and afterward. And not only might we not help you, we may be hurting you and your disease may actually blow up during that time that you're off therapy. Thank you. Let me jump in there. Um, I think conceptually, the goal of any of our local therapies in a systemic disease has to be to render a patient disease-free on a macroscopic level. So at least that's oftentimes what we aim for. So if um, we can res resect or remove all macroscopic disease with uh, local therapies, that is oftentimes what, what we should strive for, just re resecting or radiating or ablating one or two lesions when there's others left behind for systemic therapy is oftentimes not meaningful. The other aspect about the biology is that we should consider what systemic therapies are available and their efficacy. That is a rapidly changing field and we need to adjust to that with our local therapies. And the last point I'd like to make is the distribution. Sometimes you have patients where you have three or four mats all in one lobe, where it makes a lot of sense to just remove that lobe and, you know, then you can actually render the patient disease-free macroscopically, as opposed to three or four lesions in you know, all kinds of different lobes bilaterally. I think that's a very different scenario. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, I'm going to address this question to uh, Frank Detterbeck. Recently, um, the, uh, the, there were published the updated results of the uh, pulmonary metastasectomy and colorectal cancer, or the PULMIC trial, uh, suggesting that the assumption that um, of zero or poor survival in the control, meaning the, uh, those treated with systemic therapy alone, no metastasectomy, is invalid, and that the added value of pulmonary metastasectomy towards survival is unknown. Do you feel that the, um, that trial, um, that that conclusion is uh, accurate based on the design and execution of the trial? And do you think it provides useful information uh, for all of us to try to decide whether there's a role at all for local um, control of pulmonary mets? I, I think the PULMIC trial is definitely uh, an important uh, piece of information that we need to think about carefully. Uh, but does it answer all questions? Absolutely not. So just to briefly review, it was uh, pulmonary colorectal cancer metastases uh, and uh, a large number of patients were uh, registered in the study, but uh, only those uh, much smaller proportion of patients for which there was equipoise about whether to do metastasectomy or to continue some sort of systemic therapy were they entered in the randomization uh, portion. So, uh, you know, a lot of patients, uh, the decision was they should get metastasectomy, very small number for which there was equipoise were randomized to either getting uh, a you know local therapy or getting no local therapy. 
so, you know, it's a very small group for which there was equipoise. The study uh, included in the end 93 patients, uh, so a much smaller number of patients than what they intended. Uh, I think that limits it. Um, so small number, uh, selected cohort for which there was equipoise. On the other hand, I think that the one conclusion that stands out quite a bit is, you know, we have always tended to assume that if you didn't do a local therapy, that these patients would fare poorly. And in fact, those patients didn't fare poorly. So I guess you could also say, okay, we've got a select group of patients. There was equipoise for that group. It turns out there was good reason for there to be equipoise because the results were pretty similar whether you did local therapy or not. Does that tell us much about the patients for which there was no equipoise? Not not exactly. I think that we do have to uh, not, I think we have to be careful not to assume that a lack of local therapy is necessarily as bad as we have thought. I think that is something that we should take as a take-home message in our, you know, judgment about when to apply local therapies and what local therapies and how much risk to undertake when you are doing a local therapy. So, um, so I guess I'll ask um, maybe each of the panelists to make a, uh, uh, to answer this, uh, you know, in a, in some way, shape or form. So um, when we consider uh, therefore local therapy for lung mets, is the, is the, is the primary goal cure? Or is there a role? Is there a role for secondary uh, benefits like um, you know prolongation of survival as opposed to cure? So maybe we can go round the horn. Uh, we would do the uh, ladies first. Mari Antonov, is cure the only thing that matters? I think that I, I would most certainly say cure is not the only thing that matters. That's always the ultimate goal, and that's what we, what we strive for. But, of course, there are situations where palliation is important, patients who have hemoptysis from a tumor, you know, eroding into pulmonary artery, whatever else. There are situations where you have a patient who's young, they're healthy, they're in their, you know, maybe their 20s and their 30s, they've got a young family, and they've got 10 lesions that are stable on systemic therapy, but for some reason, one lesion is continuing to grow at a rapid rate. You're not going to cure that patient by taking out that one lesion that's growing at a rapid rate, but it certainly makes us feel better, like we're doing something to prolong that patient's life. And like we've discussed already so many times, it's individualized, right? So, I mean, what's the risk-benefit ratio for that exact patient? But I'd love to hear what the other panelists have to say as well. Okay, Andres Rinder. I think there is increasing evidence that we can achieve a progression-free survival benefit. There were um, two phase two, three phase two randomized trials on SBRT versus continuation of systemic therapy or palliative therapy that showed a remarkably similar outcome in PFF's benefit of about six months. That was two of these were in non-small cell lung cancer oligometastatic patients, and one was in um, all kinds of different histologies. So that's I would say the best evidence we have right now. Um, indicating that there is a PFS benefit to what we do with local therapies, obviously in the right, rightly selected patient and all that. And then there's an ongoing phase three NRGLU002 study that is looking at this um, that, and, and then powered a little bit more strongly. So I do think PFS does matter. For instance, in EGFR mutant lung cancer, we've seen an over two year duration before we need to switch to another systemic therapy with the addition of local therapy, surgery, and radiation, and uh, ablation as well. So, you know, those are meaningful time frames, I believe. Um, so, so yes, we ha and we have some evidence now that I think the surgeons can glean from, um, given that uh, there's plenty of data that suggests that both surgery and SBRT result in local control of about 90%, I think, you know, even though we don't have maybe pure surgical data as much, um, other than the pulmonary trial, there is certainly data for local therapy in that space. 
Great. Steve, Solomon? Yeah, I mean, I would say what I said earlier is I think giving patients a chance to get off their chemotherapy is a, is, a, is a very good quality of life measure. And then secondly, as Andreas alluded to, you know, the oncologist has limited drugs. And so if you can have them, uh, you know, if you can buy time before they have to switch to a different uh, uh, therapy, that also provides benefit. Uh, so I think there are uh, reasons that are not beyond just the survival where we can help patients. So Mike Lanuti, how do we, how would we get that notion to, uh, let's say, a larger group of uh, perhaps uh, medical oncologists that ha have otherwise have uh, equipoise or not about the value of aggressive local therapy for pulmonary meds? How do we, how do we talk to our medical colleagues about that, or provide evidence, or, I mean, assuming you believe there's there's benefit beyond just cure or not cure? Well, I think we have to be present at the multidisciplinary meetings and, uh, and bring in the evidence that we might have accumulated. Uh, again, not of it, none of it's terribly randomized. I think that um, if they understand what we offer has low morbidity, where there's good functional outcomes, I think they'll buy into that. Uh, if they realize that as Steve said, if they can get holidays off their chemotherapy with a hiatus where you're taking out some things surgically that for us is low morbidity, I think that adds a lot of value. Um, and in, in my discussions with the patients, I don't often always say, okay, as my first sentence, we're going for cure. I say, can this be safely removed without, you know, making you a functional cripple? And, um, and, and that's, I think, important for us. But when you ask, you know, how do we get the medical oncologist on board for local therapies? It's having all these people on this call in the room together to discuss what can I offer with low morbidity. Excellent. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to turn it back over to, to Dirk um, to um, take us uh, home with uh, maybe some discussion comparing uh, all the modalities a little bit. Thanks, Bernie. Uh, that was a good discussion. I enjoyed it. Yes, now we have come to uh, the discussion on comparing different modalities, and we are very lucky that we have uh, both an interventional radiologist um, and a radiation oncologist, and of course, many surgeons. So my first question would be, for those patients that can tolerate any local therapy, which scenarios do you think are best for ablation, for stereotactic radiotherapy, and for surgery? So maybe let's start with ablation, and I turn it over to Steve. What, what are, in your opinion, um, the, the, best, the best scenarios? I think, that, I think we have to work together as a team. I think we have to realize that we need to preserve lung function. I mean, what's in the best interest of the patient is preserving their lung function and quality of life in a, unfortunately, oftentimes a terminal disease. Um, and so we have to work together and say, some are good for one modality and some are good for another modality. As I started to say earlier, the smaller lesions tend to be good for an ablation. A central lesion where a surgeon would have to do a lobectomy, again, doesn't preserve as much lung. And we also have to keep in mind that these patients are likely to have multiple metastases even after this first intervention. There may be a second intervention and a third intervention, and we don't want to waste it all up front. And if it's, you know, if you irradiate the, you know, entire right chest, you're not going to be able to irradiate them the second time when ablation might not be possible or surgery may not be possible. So we have to think ahead of time also and work together as a team. Okay. So should we then all be in the same multidisciplinary board meeting? We, we have, and in fact, we have actually started that here in different modalities. Uh, we have, for example, a multidisciplinary bone metastasis clinic that actually has been very productive where we have a radiation oncologist, an orthopedic surgeon, and an interventional radiologist talking about these patients. And it might be time that we think about this too for this oligometastatic uh, lung lesion as well. Good. Let's turn over to Andreas. What is your uh, opinion on, on the best scenario? 
Well, for for radiation, it is generally the patient that has too many comorbidities to be a good surgical candidate. I think that is still um, the patient population that we're most focused on. Um, as you know, from the lung cancer literature, um, there is certainly, you know, it has become the standard of care for inoperable patients and for marginally operable patients and operable patients, it's still, you know, a little bit of a discussion. It's probably very close, but not standard. Now in the metastatic setting, I'm, I often feel a little bit more um, strongly about radiation, depending on what the, what the, what the context is. And, and that's, that relates to what Steve just said, that we have to think about what else is coming down the road, right? If the patient has more metastases, if the patient um, requires more um, local therapies, what, it, what is the least intrusive and can reserve most lung function? And, you know, just by default, because radiation is generally considered in the patients that have poor lung function, um, we are specialized in those patients. But again, as I said earlier, if it's a young fit patient, I will, uh, with, with really only one or two metastases, I think um, those are best served with surgery. Okay. And then finally, let's turn over to the surgeon. Frank, do you think that a, a fit patient should have surgery first before we discuss other ablative treatments? Well, I, you know, I am reflecting on the fact that when I was 20 years old, I thought I knew a lot of things. And each year, I come to the conclusion that I know less and less you know, what I thought I knew, I don't really uh, know. <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start with that. So, you know, I used to think a lot more about cure of patients. Um, I'm, I'm a lot less convinced that that is really what we are accomplishing. Uh, I think we are often just selecting those patients that are going to have a really long disease-free interval. And uh, so I'm a little bit less sure about that. As I have become a little less sure of that, I've sort of moved away from saying I really want to palpate the lung and get every last little speck out of there. I'm more willing to uh, say, well, I'll take out what I see and uh, you know, we'll see what happens afterwards. Um, I think that uh, uh, along these same lines, uh, I am you know, much more cognizant of the uh, uh, I think primarily short-term morbidity of uh, surgery, um, but, you know, there certainly is a downside, and that makes me uh, be much more, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, uh, it doesn't take that much to sway me to uh, doing uh, radiation or ablative techniques. Um, I think if it's something that is a, you know, chip shot for surgery, i think that's still nice and definitive and it's done and, uh, um, you know, patients are often a little worried with, you know, ablative uh, techniques. Well, how do I know it's really gone? Has that appeal? That's a psychological thing. Uh, I think sometimes there's value in getting more tissue. Uh, so I think that can be something that moves you towards, a, you know, surgery. Um, but like I said, I think that I'm a little bit, uh, I'm more influenced by the gestalt of the biology that I get. I'm more influenced by thinking about the morbidity that I'm creating, and I'm less convinced of the uh, you know, benefit that uh, local therapies have in general, but also that you know, surgery has over other modalities. So I think that sums up my general sort of shift over the years. Okay, that's excellent, Frank. Thank you. Now, time is running. So let, let's move to the, the topic of uh, lymph node involvement. We know from studies that a certain percentage, uh, up to 15% of patients with pulmonary metastases will have lymph nodes involved with cancer. And so the question, of course, to the panelists are, do we need to sample these lymph nodes? Do we need to do a radical lymphadenectomy in all patients? And how do our radiation oncologists and interventional radiologists deal with, with the lymph nodes? Because they, they cannot sample these lymph nodes. So what is your opinion? Let's, let's start with, um, with Mara, maybe. Sure. 
Um, it's a great question, and I think that many of us were taught not to take out the lymph nodes because it doesn't improve survival, but as has been alluded to by several of the panelists already, is that we do believe that there's a really important piece of prognostic information that we get from taking out those lymph nodes. And from my perspective, if I think I'm going in to take out two or three nodules and that the patient is going to be disease-free, and I don't get any information about the lymph nodes when I'm right there and it's pretty darn easy to take those nodes out. If I can take out a whole bunch of nodes and be able to give information to the patient, their medical oncologist, and the other treating physicians, just to be able to have an idea what their disease state is, it may impact decisions down the line for that patient about whether they, they feel systemic therapy is appropriate. And so um, I feel that for a lot of patients, they don't know if there's going to need to be further systemic therapy after surgery. And we frequently tell them that it depends on intraoperative findings. Sometimes you go in looking for one nodule and you take out five. Sometimes you go in to take out one large nodule and you are also find a bunch of positive lymph nodes. So I think we are there. It is in our skill set. It is not technically challenging. And there's really minimal reason not to provide that additional prognostic information to the rest of the care team while we're there. Okay, thanks. Steve, how do you deal with uh, lymph nodes that show up on the PET scan or that do not show up on the PET scan? I think let's take the ones that don't show up on the PET scan first and, and just talk about that, I guess. I mean, the, the need to sample nodes that are not large or active on a PET scan, for me, uh, that can't sample them because I'm there like Mara, um, I, I don't, uh, it's, to me, it's not critical. I mean, it's something we don't see. It's like saying that the circulating tumor cells, I mean, we, in the blood are there, but we don't see them. And I'm just going to move on without that. Um, so if I don't see lymph nodes that enlarged or, in, or, or FDG avid, I, I sort of move on and say, you know, we'll just treat the lung nodules. If they become large or avid later, we'll deal with that later. If I start out with a patient who has those, then, you know, it's something, it's a different story. It may need, mean that that makes somebody more likely to go to surgery instead of an ablative approach. Okay. And Andreas, how do you deal with lymph nodes? The bottom line is we don't really, right? I mean, we rely on good imaging and that is key, I think, before we plan the radiation, get an up-to-date uh, scan, uh, CT scan or PET scan, depending on the primary histology, if it's FDG avid. Um, I think from a non-surgical perspective, PET scan is not as bad as it rep is sometimes amongst surgeons. I mean, the sensitivity is around 90%. So yes, you miss maybe 10% or maybe 15% of the lymph nodes, but especially in a metastatic setting where it's not necessarily a curative setting, um, I think that is uh, of less uh, importance or value. I think um, we have much more reason to fight over that in a definitive curative uh, early stage lung cancer setting. But, um, and, and even there, we just go with best imaging many, many times when patients are not candidates for invasive mediastinal staging. So I think the bottom line is PET scanning is not that bad. And um, yeah, in, in radiation oncology, we just don't um, deal you. with the lymph nodes. That is a very Then my, my final question to the same three panelists. Uh, um, do you know of any situations when multiple local modalities are combined? I mean, we start with surgery and then we move to to uh, stereotactic radiotherapy. What, what are these situations? Uh, we, we've been involved in a, a number of cases like that, um, where a lesion, one lesion in the right lung might be very large for an ablation and the surgeon will take that out, where there may be smaller lesions on the left lung that I could ablate, a central lesion that the radiation oncologist could potentially do. And, and that's how we can work as a team. Okay. Good, that was excellent. Let's uh, turn over back to, to Bernie. Uh, maybe you can, Bernie, discuss the future directions and make some concluding remarks. Yes, thank you. Uh, again, I wanted to thank all the panelists. It was really a, a great discussion. The, the hour really flew quite by. We could probably talk for hours about this topic. Um, you know, I think overall, um, it's clear that uh, treat, there um, is certainly um, a role for a treatment of uh, local treatment of pulmonary metastatic disease, but clearly um, it requires a thoughtful sort of multi, uh, you know, disciplinary um, decision-making process because there's so many factors involved, including the histology of the disease, the natural history of the disease, the, what the patient brings to the table, 
the location and size of the lesion. So it really requires all of these types of excellent physicians and including the most important, uh, the patient to decide uh, how their uh, treatment uh, fits best in their goals, whether it be uh, the opportunity for cure or the opportunity for prolongation or survival. So uh, I do think we definitely need more um, information, more guidance, and probably seems to me that that would come through uh, really a multi, um, you know, multi-modality effort um, to try to, again, uh, define uh, these kinds of guidelines and, um, you know, for people um, to, to treat these patients. So I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, I do think it uh, is going to require more work in the future. Um, but I think that uh, this was a great um, webinar to kind of discuss sort of the most important points um, and uh, goals of uh, local uh, treatment in the lung. So on behalf of the STS and uh, my fellow panelists and my fellow moderator, I just wanted to thank everybody for participating and, and wish everybody stay safe and uh, look forward to some of the other uh, seminars uh, uh, going on this summer uh, by the STS. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Park and Dr. Van Ramdonk, and thank you to all our panelists today for your participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at sts.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Once again, we'd like to thank Medtronic for their support of this webinar series. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, August 13th at 5 p.m. Central Time for the next webinar in our summer series. Thank you all again and hope to see you back here later this month.